this idea of it's coming from a sefer called and this is this is actually one of the svarim that I've recently fell in love with. It's called Teres Avram. It's written by a person called Rabbi Avram Rukozhinsky, who was the mashkech in the Slabotka Yeshiva in, in Europe. And he was a Talmud of the Alt of Slabotka, Rabnosan Finkel, and an amazing man. Eventually he perished in the Slabotka Geta. He was, he was in, the, in the war. Um, and there's a small biography in the in the first part of this book and it's actually fascinating he what's even more interesting for me is some of his pieces were written at the onset of the war so now we have hindsight as to what was about to occur but he is writing when when what is for us the past was still in the future and it's absolutely fascinating how he approaches the 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 impending threat to the Nazis from a Torah perspective and what should we do next and how and like so you almost feel the inner workings of how he as a Tom Kochen was processing the German invasion. It's absolutely fascinating. But in the beginning they've got a small section on um on a few things that happened to him in his life. Um I just want to see if there's a, there's So it's there's a it, br- it brings about like just see how because I'll just ca- do you mind if I read you a few a few things from a little bit about his biography? It says in the darkness of I'm going to be reading and translating in my mind, so the English may be a little bit odd. Um, in the darkness of the Holocaust, our um, his spirit never fell. He was always vital and awake, and even in the darkest of days, his his the, his shining countenance, you know, it's his like his glow, never dissipated. There was a time during the 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 what they the actiot the actions with the A K T where they used to um, when they used to basically the selections where they used to take away the Jews, to the and. There was obviously, whenever these things were called about, there was incredible, incredible fear. And people would get depressed and downtrodden in the ghetto. It came to Shabbos, and um, he spotted on the face of one of his Talmidim, he saw that he was completely despairing and filled with sadness. And he immediately went up to him and warmly told him that it's Shabbos, you have to make Shabbos with Simcha. Now, you see the incredible capacity of a transcendent spirit that in a place where the entire world has gone havoc, to have this solid anchoring in Torah that nothing, nothing flinches you. It just builds Shabbos. You know, people are the most horrendous tragedies occurring around you, but Shabbos is Shabbos and you have to make Shabbos mitoch simcha and you don't flinch. There was, there were times when in his house there was absolute starvation and when they managed to find some food, he never altered his manner of eating from the way he normally would. He has a very, he has a very um, controlled eater. They said of Rebbe the way they described Rebbe who's who's 
who was a, a colleague of his, they said when you saw him eating, it looked as if he was feeding someone else. In other words, he had this control. Now you can imagine the kind of the, the strength of spirit where the ideas are translated into the cogent reality that there's starvation. You'd think, okay, you know, take a break. It's like, you know, devour your food. And you sit there and you say, okay, I've got food. So slowly but surely move the food to your mouth. This, this, literally, you, you see a person that's found in this world, but he's, 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 he's an otherworldly spirit. Who could imagine what was going on in those crazy days when the tens of thousands would stand in the square and they would start the selections? Any person that was put onto the good side, that is, he'd be saved from death, so he'd have this sigh of relief. They're like, deep, deep, I'm saved. But with, with Rabbi Robert Grodzinski, it was the opposite. When he was put to the side of the living, he was broken as he looked at the other side and saw who was going to the side of death. In other words, when all the base human, like that was a crucial testing ground for how far a person's integration of Torah went. And you'd think that in the time when the most precious thing a person has is his basic physical life and it's just been spared, you'd think the first thought that would come to your mind is a sense of release, the relief. And the first thought that came to his mind was, <gasps> what's happening to them? Almost as if he wasn't playing a role. So it says that he was a man of halacha even in the midst of the even in the midst of the Holocaust, he is constantly dealing with things on what the halachic implications would be, and he never made a step in his life which wasn't based on halacha. A small example is when the Germans entered into Kovna, so all the inhabitants fled. So he also moved out from the the city, um, but when he got ready to move, he put on his rabbinic garb as if he was going to the shiva. So they, one of his relatives said to him, one of the people close to him said, what did you do that for? So he quoted a Gomorrah Sanhedrin that said, even in a time of danger, a person shouldn't alter. If he's, if he's of the rabbinic status, he should still behave as a rabbi. Oh, these are the things that, you know, they just, in my life, well, when, when things like start to, when havoc starts to just forget about all that stuff and just live. So it's this, that's called really being there. So he said, it's, it's amazing that he, in one of his just, in one of his writings, he writes about how a person gives up his life. And he says that when a person gives up his life, shouldn't be done with haste. Because a person give up his life with haste when, if you kind of, you lose your sensibility or your control, your clearness, clarity of mind, so then it's easy to, easy in inverted commas, to give up your life don't jump into it rather you should go slowly and in a measured fashion it's just it's, it's beyond belief the the levels that he he finally reached anyway so that's who that's who we 
who's writing this this work um, and the title the title of the piece that we began discussing yesterday is called Torah which means the the laws the parameters of human intellect and um, Johnny actually asked a great question yesterday after Shir is he starts off with bringing a series of different proofs from the Chumash as to people being held responsible for acts which really they were never warned about. They were never told that they weren't allowed to do them, yet they held responsible for doing them. Stoim, we're never told that you can't be machnis orchim. There's no, there's no mitzvah of chesed that was commanded to them. Amoin and Moab, where were they told that when the Jewish people came out of Egypt that they had to go and welcome them with food and drink? They had food and drink, the Jewish people, anyway and they were punished as it were eternally, never being allowed to enter into the Jewish people as a result of that. Avi Melech, there were a series of different examples within Chumash where people are seemingly held responsible for mitzvahs and um, transgressions that they were never made, were never made explicit to them, that they can't do them. So he seeks to understand what was stopping them from doing them and hence why they're culpable. If a person's unaware of something, you can't be held culpable. So his line of reasoning is, that and this is going to be the, this is the question that Johnny asked is that there's an intuitive understanding that every human being has to a basic concept of both morality and intellectual um, awareness of the world around him and that intuitive understanding that sophisticated set of internal guidance is binding on the person and he's going to go throughout this piece and perhaps suggest that that your seichel is actually has a even greater as it were obligation to follow than the Torah itself which is astonishing so Johnny's question was that and this is this is a point that we're going to have to explore in detail because one of the crucial um, messages of the Baal Shiva movement is if you have options if you have options, um, now maybe I'll just borrow on from my previous diagram, um, where you have over here a a distinction between the seichel, which is the cognitive part of man, and the sensory part of man. Um, what one of the major proofs of, let's say, or the incentives for people to become from, is the notion that without an objective God-given morality you're going to get life wrong so you need to come on to that objective reality in order to guide you in life and this approach seems to fly in the face of that that a person left up to his own workings if he thinks deeply enough about how life works he'll come to the conclusions that the Torah itself requires now the question is how far does it go but there definitely is an idea that a person there's a shared, intrinsic, absolute sense of morality within all. So in other words, it seems to be that, I don't know if you can get to Torah, but you can get to, you can get far. Exactly how far you can get remains a discussion. But that's, that's the brief introduction to the piece we're about to study. Any questions so far? Well, is, that, is that a proven... How do we know that every person has that? Okay, so again, it's going to be a con contemptu uh, contentious topic to discuss. And um, I don't by any means think that we should all just sit there and lap it up. We have to challenge it because it's, 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 it's quite a 
it's quite a brave statement to make that that people in other words it would mean that all these people who don't subscribe to a code of morality which is what we dictate as a code of morality for example welcoming guests etc so they actually they have it with inside themselves to know that that's the right thing to do and there's something inside themselves that they're choosing not to do it and hence they're responsible they're responsible because experientially one wouldn't think that one would think that those are social or cultural or sociological things which which you know some some nations are very into some nations are for example the arabs are famous for their hospitality bedouins bedouins know that Bedouins, they, they, if, you, they, if you come to the door of their tent, they, they have to welcome you in. It's like almost like it's a given. Whereas in the Orient, in Japan and China, I don't think there's any culture of hospitality. As far as I recall, when there was one of the earthquakes in Japan, there were people who were left on the streets, but they weren't brought into the homes of the people around them. It's open for verification. I don't like to quote things when I have no clue about the quote. I heard it on Yeshiva News. <laughs> But I do think that there's there, there's definitely cultural difference. When so so we we used to thinking about these things as cultural, and we don't think that if we could peel away the layers of culture and we'd really kind of put a person on the spot, he'll say, "I know it's wrong," or "I know what I'm doing is right." So it's going to be it's going to be it's going to be open for discussion. Absolutely, absolutely. One should never accept anything without questioning it. Reza, you know, all good. It's all good, Rabbi. Anything just don't make me think. Yeah. Okay? Good? So let's see what he says. Um, so he brings, this is already his starting point. He brings the introduction of Reb Nisim Gaon. Reb Nisim Gaon was one of the Gaonim. The Gaonim were a generation of sages who. Um, if you go through the, 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 what we call in Jewish terminology the Yeridas Adores, the decline of the generations, so there's a fundamental Jewish principle that the spiritual stature of the generations declines year by year, generation by generation. It's not clear to me, or maybe it's both, if the pinnacle was Adam, Arishan, Adam and went down thereafter or it was Moshe Rabbeinu and went down thereafter and it could be both are true because the Jewish people at Har Sinai, Mount Sinai reached the level of Adam, Arishan, of Adam before he committed the sin so let, let's, let's, let's start the decline from Har Sinai that was the moment of the ultimate spiritual truth and ever since that generation there's been a gradual and sometimes radical decline year after year generation after generation so the way the prophet started is Moshe Rabbeinu was the greatest prophet ever but often follows the years of prophecy the prophets, the prophets are then um, not preceded are succeeded are succeeded by the men of the great assembly who are succeeded and many of them, some of them were prophets, but then you go into the period called the Tanaim, who are the authors of the Mishnah. They are then succeeded by the Amoraim, the authors of the Gemara, who are then succeeded by the Savaroim, who were like this intimate, they were like, some of their words are recorded in the Gemara, but very few. And then you have the period known as the Goonim, who lived primarily in Mesopotamia. And then after that, there's a period of the Rishonim, and finally the period of the Achronim, and then there's us. The Achre Achronim. The last of the very last. Um, 
So the Goyim were, were pretty up there, they were before the Rishonim. One of these Goyim, his name was Reb Nisan Goyim, and he wrote a parish on Shas. And his introduction to the parish on Shas, he says the following thing. He says, David, David, David. Strange thing for, for him to, I mean, he didn't even know how to pronounce the, the English pronunciation of the word David. I, I thought it was strange, but in fact, thinking about it, he didn't say that at all. It could have just been a tactic to bring a little bit of life back to the slumbering souls. Um, Dave. So I was just, I was just saying, we're just discussing Reb Nisim Gon, Rebbeinu Nisim Gon, and um, he's going to say something which is deeply fascinating. And I would like to share it with you, if I may. Are you ready for it? Says Reb Nisim Gon. I don't know if you're ready for it. Call. Any mitzvah which is dependent on logic, on understanding, on the understanding of the heart, we are obligated to perform it from the time that man was created upon the earth. And to his generations, and to his generations, his descendants for all generations. Any mitzvah which has a logical understanding attached to it, the obligation did not begin at Har Sinai, it began with the creation of the world. And the mitzvahs which are known through tradition, and the words of the prophets and the mitzvahs which we know through the tradition and through the prophets so Hashem also gave some of those to the original generations that which he saw fit to make them obligated in those mitzvahs in other words there were some mitzvahs which were given over through prophecy Adam Arishan had mitzvahs there were different mitzvahs what they were but there were mitzvahs around but those mitzvahs which were given were not the mitzvahs which a person could logically understand mitzvahs which a person can logically understand so the chiyuv doesn't begin with the Torah the chiyuv begins with the creation and putting in this world so now that's a, that's a quote from from Reb Nisim going okay now let's see what Reb Avram Grzynski does with it but so far it seems and again this is, before we go ahead this is, my, this, is my, this is my problem my problem with this whole thing is that in life there's options meaning let's say there's a mitzvah orchim. so I can understand why it's a mitzvah if someone has no food that I should extend myself and give them food but I could also understand the opposite that the food is legitimately, legitimately and rightfully mine and therefore why should I give it to him so when you've got a conflict between two different reasonings how do you know which is the right one to choose that's basically my fundamental problem in other words, there are many different ways of perceiving the world. And there are many different ways of creating different philosophies, moral or immoral. And the implication over here is that given a person, a person given the right honesty, everyone will come up with the same philosophy. 
Yes, Brett. Isn't that philosophy of a half to the right of a marker? And then, is it, is it acceptable to expect that a person would want to be treated, should treat others the way they would like to be treated? And if they had no food, they would want someone to offer them food, therefore they should offer other people food? That's pretty logical, isn't it? What? Because if you're always in power, then it doesn't matter, you're never going to be in that position. You can't. But you could switch it away. Let's switch around the other way. Brett, that's what I mean. In other words, the other way to switch around is that if I've got the chocolate, if I'm the person, I'm approaching you for the chocolate, I know that you'd rather eat the chocolate than give it to me. <laughs> Depends which side you're looking at. If you're looking at the giver or the taker. So if you look at it from the perspective of the taker, the taker, he'd rather the chocolate that you have. But the giver would rather the chocolate than give it to you. So if, if I So if pretty much if you're the taker, you should never ask because you know people don't want to give. And therefore it seems to be that this kind of... You're, you're saying the same thing. You, you can't be sure. There's, there's two logical... There's two logical. There's two seems to be two ways, which is the problem which we have to try and of try wade through over here. But let's see what he says. But so far, do you understand the sugya? Because, I mean, I think we all have... But it's hard for us to tell because we've been socialized. We have been brought up in like some type of desert island, so it's very difficult to know how much of our morality is just because of different things that we have during our formative years as, as youths in a particular society, and how much of it is really intrinsic. It's so hard to know where one begins and the other ends. Do you understand? So let's go and see what he says and see if we can make sense of this. Um, he says, Rebnison Gohan, three short words, reveals to us a completely new light in understanding humankind. That anything that is logical, a person has to do it. It's almost as if that logic can create a positive and a set of positive and negative commandments. The previous generations, that is Noach and the Avos, there were mitzvahs that they got through tradition. For example, that you can't mix different crops, which is not logical. That you can't castrate a behemoth, which is not logical. That bris Miller, the covenant of Miller, and the sciatic nerve that it can't be eaten, all of those, we can understand that those are not mitzvahs that you could ever chap yourself. But there are other mitzvahs, as we've discussed, and he says explicitly that there are the knowledge of Hashem, obeying what He has to say, bloodshed, theft, all of those are not also because Hashem told you that they are so. They're not forbidden because the rebellion should only proclaim that they are so. They are so because you know they are. So yes, you know there. Oh, uh, again, this is the problem. Going. Why would the Torah then state it? No. <coughs> you mean to know it logically whether the Torah says it or not on the contrary it's a kasha on the Torah in other words um, th and this is kind of one of the most w interesting Gemaras is a Gemara in Bavakama so in Daf, if I'm not mistaken the Gemara goes through an interesting Shakla and Torah give and take the Gemara says as follows um Mevavamut base. The Gemara asks a question. 
There's a basic fundamental halachic principle which is called Hamoiti Michaveroi Olavaraya. The one that comes to take out, to extract from another, on him is incumbent the proof. Meaning, if I claim that the shirt that you're wearing belongs to me, I have to prove that it's mine. You don't have to prove that it's yours. The person who's in possession of the object, he has a right to keep it until proof is brought against him that it, oh, it belongs to the second person. So the Gemara says, where do we learn this principle from? So the Gemara begin, brings a pasuk. It brings a pasuk, you know, it brings a pasuk that when Moshe Rabbeinu went up to Harsinai, he says to Aaron and Hur, if there's any type of legal disputes, so the litigants should come to you. And the Gemara understands allegorically that this means Yagish Raya Alehem. They should present the proof to you, serving as a proof that the one that is coming to extract should bring the proof. But then the Gemara asks the Kasha, must give the Ravashi, Ravashi asks the Kasha, Halamali Kra, Svaru, why do I need a verse? It's obvious, it's logical. The one that has the pain goes to the doctor. Meaning, the person who has the problem has to seek a resolution. A resolution. I'm sitting here wearing the shirt. I've got no issues. You come to me and you say, the shirt that you're wearing belongs to me. So then you've got an issue. So you have to resolve the issue. I don't have any issues. So it's logical. In other words, that's, a, that's just a muscle. That's an, an, that's an analogy. But it's, it's a very basic legal precept that the person that has the difficulty from a legal perspective, he has to seek a resolution. I'm perfectly happy that this watch is mine. You claim it's yours, so then you have to prove to me why you think it's yours. But I don't have to prove this why. I don't have an issue. I'm not the one that has a problem over here. So the Gemara says, I accept that and uses the verse for something else. So you see that when something is logically imperative, so then it's a difficulty to have a verse to support it. And hence, Resnick's kasha resounds, if all these mitzvahs are things that we could figure out, don't kill, don't steal, all the so-called mishpatim, so then the Torah has no need to say them. We'll just figure them out. Or if the Torah says them, then they're not actually logical. Or if the Torah tells them to me, so then it's not logical. So what's going on over here? Are you following me? Good. So we, we're building up a nice... We're tilling the soil of our brains to prepare ourselves to understand the sugya in a much more fundamental way. Let's go a little bit further, and what he says is as follows. Sorry, wait, that's the kasha. That's the kasha. Maybe. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So, what, 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 what? Heads point out is you're new to this. We have a basic principle in our shear. It's called the power of the unanswered kasha. Now, even though I like to dress this up in some type of educational technique, it's really just sheer and utter ignorance. But the 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 justification for it is as follows, and this is actually true, that in order to properly assimilate a new idea and make it a part of us that we only live with the idea and integrate it so the quicker the space is between asking presenting the problem and receiving the answer the less impact it has on you the longer the space between those two and the more there is a striving and a quest to try to fill that gap of knowledge when that gap when it uh, when when the knowledge is given it comes it rests in a much deeper place so therefore an unanswered question is not an enemy it's really a friend because it's the first aid to the accumulation of knowledge. And therefore, not even answer to question, we look upon as something which is healthy in our... Again, we're on on track in the sugya. We don't mean to leave the sugya, but we just... You with me, brother? Good. Okay? 
So now, um, says the Rabbi Avram, an interesting chiddush. Now we have to see how far this goes. He brings the verse, and the verse says the following: Hashem yiten chokma mipiv daat utvuna. Hashem gives wisdom from His mouth, understanding, and the application of that understanding. Says Rabbi Avram, when Hashem made man, He gave in him chokma, wisdom. And the reason why he put the wisdom in him was in order that he should use it to understand the way he should tread and the deeds he should do. He is created, this is these words, who nivra the Sefer Torah imoi. He's created with an internal Sefer Torah as Koheles Ecclesiastes Shlomo Melech says, Asa ha'elokim esa Adam Yashar. Man was created straight. And therefore, what a person has to do is guard his straightness and obey his straight seichel. And a person that worships idols falls under the category of a person that disobeys his seichel. That's an irrational way to behave. So we have to understand why. Um, we're going to have to cut it short over here and hopefully continue in the near future. Thank you.